Studio computers online. Archiving 44K. T minus 30 seconds. Server connection confirmed. T minus 25 seconds. show NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here is your host, Leno Sanic. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host, Leno Sanic. Today we're going to be speaking to Paul Blow, Andrew Eiler. They have a new book, The JFK Assassination Chokeholds. Proof that there was a conspiracy. Welcome, both of you. Thank you, Len. Good evening, Len. Good. Thank you for taking uh, time to talk to me. Well, Paul, I think that both of you are have been on Black Op Radio. We don't need any big introductions. So let's just talk about your book, The Chokeholds. Where does that name come from? And tell me a little history of how, how you started. Sure. Uh, I'll start off, Andrew, and, and you know throw, throw in anything afterwards if you want. Chokeholds, Len, was a, a term I heard for the first time from uh, Malcolm Blunt, you know, the great researcher, and he used it when he described the the way the CIA handled Oswald's file when he defected. Uh, there was no opening of a 201 file for, I think, it took a year before they opened one, and the way the information about him was circulated within the agency it went to the um, the office security, most of the information, instead of going to the Soviet-Russia division, which normally would have been the division that it would have gone to. Anyway, uh, Malcolm and a few people analyzed the movement of that file, which was first analyzed by an HSCA staffer called Betsy Wolf, and he described it as a chokehold. Uh, I think what he was referring to uh, was it you know this this is obviously a false defection you know and later on people like john newman brought i think pretty strong arguments that oswald was being used as a, a lure to flush out a mole but that's where the name comes from and chokeholds of course it, you know those who are familiar with wrestling or, or whatnot is you you think of it as being inescapable there's no response to it as for the history of you know, what brought us to, you know, the, on the 14th of November, the book will have become available. You know, we've been working on it for a year. And I think it all started at the Kappa conference last year. Between meetings, some of us were having a discussion. And one of the authors, Matt Crumpton, who we met there, young guy, he's going to be a, an awesome, awesome asset and a contributor to, uh, you know, this, this network. He became an author. He came out of the blue and he was asking us questions. 
And one of them is, you know, he asks us, do you think the backyard photos, you know, of Oswald holding the gun and the, and the rifle and the magazine is legitimate? And most of us, you know, answered, uh, you know, who were at the table. Mark Adamsick was there. Jim was there. Andrew was not there. We later met Andrew, uh, you know, after I met Andrew or knew of Andrew after the conference. But anyway, we started talking about what was persuasive information versus a chokehold. So the comment made was, you know, though most of us don't think the backyard photos are legitimate and, and they're very suspicious, they didn't rise to the level of a chokehold. So then we got on to, well, what were the chokeholds? And, you know, we, we developed a number of them. So I asked Jim, I said, would you agree that the handling of Oswald's file by the uh, CIA is a chokehold? He says, definitely. Then another one that came up was proof of a front shot. I mean, it's so obvious it was a front shot from, uh, uh, you know, the evidence. That we, the, the, and then we, we looked at, you know, we started discussing what they were. So, so that became the concept. And we decided to focus on 10 chokeholds. The interesting thing, uh, Len, is, is the team that eventually got on the project included Jim and myself. I think, you know, we've done a lot of research and three attorneys or, you know, it depends if you're Canadian or not. Andrew will correct us on this, but the attorney applies to the U.S. Andrew was Canadian. You know, we can say three lawyers if you want. So, but the, the thing here is, Throughout the writing of this book, what was amazing is the lawyers who knew about the case and knew about the JFK Act, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this and they were saying, well, is this something we'd bring to court? Is this is something we'd bring in front of a jury? And often we'd reword it or put it in a, how could I put it, put it in a frame or a, 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 an explanation that would be palatable for uh, a jury. And that's where I have to give a lot of credit to Andrew. He did a lot of writing on, uh, on an aspect that is so important called the standards of proof. So what's, you know, like what's evidence and according to what type of standard? So what permeates, I think, throughout the whole book is not just, I think, you know, good research, but you'll see the legal expertise so it's, it's, it's not written the way a lawyer would write it. It's not written the way Jim or I would write it. But the combination, I think, is really interesting. And um, maybe, Andrew, you can talk about that because right away from the get-go in the introduction, uh, Andrew wrote a part about how the Warren Commission and the HSCA were not held to any standards of proof or anything definite, and how we would try and hold ourselves to standards of proof. So, Andrew, maybe you can explain that better than I can. No, I mean, you've done a great job, Paul. What what really amazed me, Len, is, is that when I looked at the, the 10 so-called topics that, that the group had, had formulated, and, and the evidence, how it was put together by, uh, by Jim, Paul, Matt, and, and Mark, I, it baffled me how the decisions of the Warren Commission and, and the HSCA came together to provide conclusions and findings like they did. It just seemed the evidence was overwhelming 
to suggest that, uh, you know, Lee Harvey Oswald probably would not have been convicted to the criminal standard of beyond a reasonable doubt and how the House Select Committee on Assassinations really came to non-definitive findings. I mean, there's a probability that there was a conspiracy. And I I thought to myself, this something's just not sitting right. So I, I took a very close look at the Warren Commission report and the final report of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And I, I was startled by the fact that neither one of these bodies, they, they gave lip service to standards of proof in their introductory parts of, of both of their reports, but they acknowledged that this isn't a legal proceeding and we're not going to uh, apply any kind of legal standards of proof to our decision-making. And not only that, they said there's not going to be any kind of adversarial cross-examination of witnesses. We're going to hold a lot of our, our sessions um, in secret, in executive sessions. And defendant or the accused, Oswald's not going to have the right to an attorney. They're going to allow hearsay evidence. But it was the standards of proof that really, I started to think about, well, without holding a decision-making body or, or a jury or triers of fact to any kind of standard of proof, the result is is just going to be arbitrary. So, I mean, I, I looked at the history of, of the beyond a reasonable doubt, and I, I found some fascinating underpinnings for for that standard of proof, which is the standard of proof in all criminal matters in, in both Canada and the United States. And I looked at the other civil standards, and what we tried to do with chokeholds and the ten chokeholds was to look at the evidence of a whether there was a conspiracy, and to try to find what's considered a, a very high level of standard of proof of clear and convincing evidence, which is far higher than what a grand jury would take to bring a matter to, to trial. The grand jury standard is probable cause, which is a fairly low standard of proof that, uh, that a prosecution has to bring to a grand jury. The clear and convincing evidence is higher than balance of probabilities or preponderance of evidence, which is a typical civil standard. But clear and convincing evidence is below uh, the beyond a reasonable doubt standard of proof. And I, I looked at the evidence that uh, that the other authors had compiled on each of the chokeholds, and I thought, my God, this, this evidence, is, there's clear and convincing evidence, a high standard that there was a conspiracy both to cover up the assassination and with regard to the assassination itself. So I think the other authors took a look at that standard of proof, and in the sections that outlined the, the 10 chokeholds, they've made every effort to really illustrate that it passes a fairly high standard of proof for a conspiracy. Now, on the flip side, we also looked at Oswald's uh, guilt and I think the evidence that's provided in this book really does show at this stage that it would be very difficult for prosecution to get a conviction on Oswald Oswald on a beyond a reasonable doubt standard. And so the introduction of the book kind of lays out the various standards of proof and the rest of the chapters follow that kind of framework when, uh, when laying out the evidence. And the evidence at this 
point is is mountainous with all the work that was done through the assassination record or the assassination review tribunal and and with everything that's come out subsequent now i mean the the last chapter of the book which paul will get into deals with the trump and biden withholding of the remaining assassination records but i I quite enjoyed researching and setting out some of the framework for the standards of proof you know and i think in terms of the book concept what may set it apart or makes it unique and first of all we try i think we have the optimal blend of of uh, research and legal expertise the idea of focusing on chokeholds and staying away from some of the things you know like you know prayer man and the limousine slowing down or you know it's there's a lot of persuasive stuff but if if you want to convince someone you know who's really stubborn or or who has this attitude well you know that that's you know that's not solid enough and they have that attitude we think that the 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 chokeholds and i'll I'll name some of them you know that's what we focused on chokeholds the notion of consilience uh, land was really important in this book what i mean by consilience okay so let's take proof of a front shot that's one of the chokeholds Uh, By the way, Andrew came down to Quebec City uh, and I met him, uh, you know, in person for the first time about a few weeks ago. And we did a presentation in front of an audience of, you know, the general population. And we decided to focus on just two of the chokeholds, one of them being proof of a front shot. And 80 percent of the people in that room, we were there were about 80 or 90 people uh, attending the presentation. Uh, You know, (laughs) for yourself then how Quebec City right, <laughs> was interested when Oliver Stone came. They've lost none of the interest. So anyway, we were in an auditorium and we were presenting to layman and look, the body language was incredible. What we did is we showed the Sapruder film. 80% of the audience hadn't seen the Sapruder film. And then we said, okay, so look, when you look at this and you see that violent head movement, how do you, you know, what? where did the shot come from? 80 some percent said from the front. You know, it had to come from the front. So you say, well, okay, so now where's the Texas School Book Depository? Oh, it's behind. Now, for many people, that in itself is a chokehold. But when we combined it, you take that particular evidence and you combine it with the splatter analysis, which is where did, you know, the debris and the guts and the blood from Kennedy fly to? And it all flies towards the back, right? towards the motorcycle officers get hit by it and the people, the windshield of the follow-up car. And Jackie Kennedy, what does she do? She goes to get some of the debris off the trunk of the car. I mean, you know, so they say, oh, there's that. Then you show the pictures, okay, or the, the drawings that are at the National Archives of the people at Bethesda, and the doctors at Bethesda or the, the medical medical personnel at Bethesda and uh, at uh, Parkland say, here's what they describe as the wound in the back of Kennedy's head. And you have this egg-shaped exit wound in the back, and, and it's overwhelming. Then you throw in the, uh, you know, the particle trails that you can see on the x-ray which are small towards the front of Kennedy's head and larger towards the back. And then you get into uh, Holland's testimony, 
you know, his incredible testimony of what he saw. And then you get into the witness, the, the you know, the total witness, like 52 or 53 witnesses that saw or heard something from the grassy knoll area. So when you 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 take every single one where you where you may have a little bit of doubt, you have an element, something, a notion called consilience, is that all six or seven elements that we describe are impossible to explain. You might wiggle out of the uh, Zapruder film, many tried, but then when you see it all in one shot, you say, okay, look, based on the totality of that, you bring that to a jury, and that's where people like Andrew, Matt, and uh, Mark, who are lawyers, say, I'd be very comfortable bringing that. And the thing is, Len, is we have 10 of these. So to be able to destroy this book, you, you can't just demolish the front shop. You have to demolish all 10. And, and that, I don't see how someone can do that. And some of the critics, you know, we, we offered, you know, critics, uh, book critics, uh, versions of the book. And so far, their reactions are, boy, uh, you know, uh, th th this was well put together. Other elements that were really important for us is that our sources for the book, we have over 700 footnotes. We have exhibits. We have direct quotes. And over 85, 90% of it is primary information. So what do I mean by primary is you can hear the people, the witnesses uh, on a video. You, they, they're either quoted, giving testimony to the Warren Commission, the HSCA. It is primary evidence. In other words, it's not Paul Blow thinks this and, you know, so-and-so uh, uh, is a great, great researcher and he thinks this. No, it comes from what directly from the witnesses or directly from the official reports. So that was really important for us. We had an awful lot of quality control from people like Jerry Simone and David Josephs and David Boylan, Jeff Meek, Brian Edwards, Larry Hancock, Matt Doubthit, Gary Muir. You know, they gave us an awful lot of information. And before we went to print, we said, well, how do you guys react to all this? You know, and, and you know, so those are some of the important things in the concept of the book. Now, I can name you some of the chokeholds. You know, if there's a front shot, well, obviously, there's a conspiracy. The second thing that we completely demolish there once and for all, I mean, really, we didn't really need our book to demolish a single bullet theory. But, you know, especially with all the stuff that's come out recently, uh, all this talk about Paul Landis, right, who's going to be speaking in Pittsburgh, and who was a Secret Service agent in charge of Jackie's protection, who was in the follow-up car. And he came out with his story or his, uh, you know, about just this year, about picking up a bullet in, you know, uh, over the back seat where, you know, in and around where Kennedy. Uh, the reason that was important is that even though the single bullet was completely demolished, we know that people like Bugliosi would counter that by saying, okay, well, then if it came from the front, where was the bullet? You know, he confronted Cyril Wecht on that and others. And obviously the answer is, well, there was fabrication or the bullet may have ended up somewhere where no one found it or whatnot. But you had a Dr. Young, 
who was a White House physician, who already gave an explanation of a bullet that was found in the back seat. Okay, but they decided to eliminate his testimony or discount it because he mentioned the name of the limousine. There were two uh, presidential limousine cars, and he mentioned the wrong name. Okay, so Paul Landis comes out and says, "Hey, I found the, the, the this bullet in back, and I put it on uh, JFK's gurney." Now I can't comment further on that because I haven't read his book. But you throw in what these people say, and then you destroy the single bullet uh, theory by how pristine the bullet was, how the trajectory was ridiculous. You know, so if you destroy the single bullet theory, if you prove a front shot, we prove that Oswald was impersonated. It's clear he was impersonated in Mexico City and, and elsewhere. We have at least 10 to 15 instances of impersonation. And if you say, well, no, he was impersonated, he was not impersonated, that was really him, then you're in trouble also because the, the situations where we think he was impersonated, if you if you say no, well, he wasn't, well, he was with Cuban exiles or with people that were extremely suspicious. And that ruins the lone nut, uh, lone assassin or lone nut persona. But I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to go through all 10. The first chapter is one of the ones that I'm the most, you know, I think the authors were the most proud of and the least certain at first. Okay, not all the authors were certain, but it's, an, it's a long chapter and it explains what the official records really say. And what do the insiders say? Okay, they, think of this. Forget Andrew, forget Jim, forget myself. We're authors and everybody says, oh, they got an agenda. They want to sell books. They want to make money and all this sort of stuff. And then on the other side, well, you know, have you have these, they're pundits. But forget the, the people who write, you know, lone assassin scenario books and forget the people who wrote, write, you know, about conspiracies. What did the insiders say? And that sets the tone for the whole book because you see people like Richard Schweiker and Gary Hart who headed the key committee for the church committee saying things that are so blistering and so against the loan nut, you know, the Warren Commission findings. And they say the Warren Commission did a poor job in investigating whether there was a conspiracy. The HSCA, whether it's Sprague, Tannenbaum, even Blakey and Hardway and, and Fonzie. Okay, so we have these amazing quotes and these amazing things where they're on the record or things that were actually written in the reports, including the Warren Commission, you know, where you have at least three commissioners who didn't believe in the single bullet theory and what's written in the Warren Commission. It, it, compl it completely demolishes what... what what this uh, particular section does, chapter does, Len, is it puts people like you, me, Andrew, really on the side of the official record. I, I can't stress that enough. The official record backs us. It doesn't pack journalists or historians who write, well, you know, the Warren Commission found a blue ribbon panel found that Oswald was alone not. You know, they, 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 they'll go on and on with that. No, there were six government investigations. Look at them. 
see what the people say. They're on our side. It makes the pundits Paul, on if, the other if, side so minimum. If I can jump in, Paul, I have to say, when I heard the premise for this chapter, I immediately didn't like it. When it was further explained, I still had deep reservations. But I've got to say, when I reviewed Paul's chapter on what the insiders had to say, I I did a 180. It was probably... I, I didn't like the idea of it going at the beginning of the book. I thought it was going to be the one of the weakest chapters when before I'd read it. But once I'd read it, it was shocking how many, and, and Paul calls them insiders. These are people who played a role in Dallas, at Bethesda, on the Warren Commission, all of the various investigations. And th- these were power players. And while some of the findings of their commissions and and investigative bodies had diametrically opposite findings, the people who formed these committees and investigations, the, the volume of people who ended up contradicting the findings is just staggering. And, and the evidence that Paul has compiled to show with quotes from Siebert and O'Neill, the FBI agents, from the three Warren commissioners who said they never believed the single bullet theory. It, it's just hard to believe that the Warren Commission findings have still carry any weight whatsoever with the public. And I just saw today a, uh, a poll came out, and it looks like the public is starting to come back to the idea that they've been fed a, uh, a fiction by, uh, by the government with regard to the assassination. And so when people read this chapter, I've got to give Paul so much credit for this chapter. My initial reservations completely evaporated after reading this chapter. It's it, In my mind, it's one of the best chapters in the book. It starts the book on a route that says, hey, whatever we've been fed over the last 60 years, not even the people who fed it to us believe what they're feeding. So, Paul, I've I, I got to thank you for putting that together. No, no, yeah, and you know, we're talking about, thank you, Andrew, because you're right to point it out. We're talking about people who had, who spoke to witnesses, who saw the wounds with their own eyes, who had access to classified information, uh, you know, who could look witnesses in the eye, you know, who were there. And and they were, you know, really doing grassroots work, whether it's Gaetan Fonzi. Who are you going to trust more, Gaetan Fonzi or somebody who's, you know, uh, some sort of apologist who's got uh, an arm's length relationship to who knows what? I mean, in there, you have a mix of police officers, attorneys. The number, Len, the number of heads of the commissions, look, I'm talking about Doug Horn, higher ups there, okay, Doug Horn, Tuanine, Sprague, Tannenbaum, Boggs, Cooper, Russell, Cromwell, who was the, I think, the vice president of the HSCA, or maybe I'm not using the right term, but he was really high up just under, look, uh, Sullivan, one of the top three at the FBI, uh, even, even Gerald Ford. Even Arnon Spector says, when you read what Arnon Spector's true motive was for the single bullet theory, 
I, I find that, you know, I, my Andrew, I had goosebumps when Jim brought that up and he put it in his chapter on the single bullet theory. It, it, and it was, it, it was more a matter of, we got to do this. Otherwise, we have to admit that there was a conspiracy. I have no other choice. We have to go with the single bullet theory. And when you think of it, the single bullet theory came out in April when the Warren Commission had started its, its activities in late November, early December 1963. And then five months later, you, you know, the, the FBI never put in their original report that there was a single bullet. They had three different bullets hitting Connolly, uh, Kennedy, uh, you know, uh, two that hit Kennedy and one that, 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 that hit Connolly. But they had to, you know, they had to account for the tag injury, the bystander who, who was, uh, you know, hurt by a bullet or bullet debris or whatever. And then all of a sudden, a junior counselor comes up with a theory, a theory. It's not scientific theory. It's this junior counselor says, well, this is what must have happened. But then he admits to an author, to Epstein, uh, here's why I did it. And here's how I convinced the Warren Commission to go the route I wanted to go. Because, I mean, to words to the effect that if you don't accept that, well, you're going to have to find another assassin or, you know, you have to, you're going to have to, re and uh, we don't want to go there type of thing. But what happens, you see, I think with opening it with all these insiders who, you know, would be expert witnesses if they were alive and you bring them to court. Gary Hart spoke at the 50th, and he was still saying, I don't understand why we didn't look into how, why Johnny Rosselli was murdered and Gian Kenna when we were trying to question them. I said, it seems to me that if you looked at who assassinated them, you could have figured out a hell of a lot about the Kennedy assassination. Words to that effect. And that's Gary Hart, a senator of all people. And Schweiker, Schweiker says the Warren Commission has collapsed like a house of cards and was developed to feed pablum to the American people. I mean, what does a historian who writes a history book need to know more than that so that he doesn't refer to the Warren Commission as his source to say there was a lone assassin? It's, it's mind boggling. Andrew, I think uh, another chapter after we end the land with the longest chapter, it's it's called 60 years of obstruction of justice. And maybe let's start with the end of that, uh, Andrew, you, you know, because you you covered the Biden Trump so well and you wrote an article about it and we, we imported it into the book. And I prefer you talk about that aspect. I mean, we, what we do and before that is we show the amount of obstruction that goes on uh, during the Warren Commission, what they did to Jim Garrison, which was an onslaught, what they did to, to manipulate the Rockefeller Commission. Even the church committee was hard hit after a while, as was the HSCA. Look, the ARRB, they say that, you know, if you, if you look at the history of the ARRB, they say what? The Secret Service destroyed the files on Kennedy's travels during 1963. And that, of course, would have revealed a heck of a lot about prior plots to kill him. But they didn't want the ARB to have access to that. And then they talk about how the Office of Naval Intelligence 
got rid of a woman called some I think it's Terry Pike or anyway, it's Pike the family name, who was the liaison between the ONI and the ARB, and she was doing a great job of feeding them information. Well, she had to, I mean, what they did to her was unbelievable. But then the coup de grace, so I think, is the horrible news that we got this year, you know, and uh, maybe, Andrew, you can chime in on that because, and say what's at stake, but uh, we should have had, go ahead, Andrew. Sure. Len, I, I think with the revelations that have come out from Paul Landis, the Dallas Motorcade Secret Service agent, and his handling of what some are, are, are thinking is the magic bullet. With this being the 60th anniversary of the assassination in uh, on the 22nd, but as Paul has mentioned, most importantly, the current situation with the with the JFK records that are. There's about 4,000 of them that are continuing to be held in secret. This is current news. This isn't ancient history. And I know a lot of establishment journalists like to write the JFK assassination off as ancient history off 60 years ago. But we have current evidence coming out, or evidence coming out a few weeks ago by Paul Landis. And we have decisions by President Biden that happened this year and there's a lawsuit going on against president biden and national archives right now in order to secure the release of those records that by law were required to be made public in uh, october of 2017 and so this is a current news situation and I think talking about uh, the, well, the last time that I was on, Len, we, we talked in detail with Jim about the Biden order to withhold 4,000 records from public release and how the JFK Act is, is basically being shredded by the CIA, the FBI, and, and other agencies with the approval of President Biden, who in fact signed the JFK Act back in 1992. This is offensive, and, and I think what we've tried to do with this book is show the overwhelming evidence that deeply questions, not questions, it, it refutes the official findings of the Warren Commission, and it shows that these are current issues. Every time more documents have been released, the, the picture gets clearer and clearer, and by putting all of this evidence in one book and trying to hold that evidence to high standards. I think this is an important book for the public to take a look at. Yeah. You know, one of our biggest challenges, Len, what it was, it was to to make the book relevant to both the general population and the seasoned researchers. So, you know, when you go back to what I was saying, you know, 80% of the people that we spoke to hadn't seen the Zapruder film. So we had to, you know, we started every chapter with a executive summary. In other words, in this chapter, we will show you this. And then we go through the evidence. And then at the end of the chapter, there's sort of a summation that is similar to what a lawyer would bring to a jury or to, you know, as final, as a final explanation. So we did our best to make it really interesting 
for the general population. And in the back of our mind, we were saying, well, you know, suppose, suppose I was in front of a history teacher and he said, well, Oswald killed Kennedy. You know, it was a lone assassin. So we were always saying, okay, well, how do you explain the fact that he was impersonated at least eight, nine, ten times? How do you affect, how do you explain Jack Ruby's behavior? Certainly sounds like a, a mission from a mafia-connected guy to silence someone. How do you explain, uh, you know, so much evidence of a crime shot? How do you explain the fact that people, like, if if this is true, why did Richard Schweiker say this or Gary Hart say that? If he said that and he's acting on information that it was more uh, more relevant and, and more complete and more up-to-date than what came out during the months after the assassination used by the Warren Commission, why are you giving more weight to the Warren Commission conclusions than to the HSCA conclusions. Why? Explain that. And I know that they can't answer that because I asked teachers when I did my study on history books, and they, they can't answer that. They weren't aware that there was an HSCA. They were not aware that there was an ARRB. So their, their, their world revolved around something that was parroted about the Warren Commission so back, so far back in the day. Now, getting to the seasoned audience, I'll tell you things that I knew, I, I, we discovered and worked on. In the book, you're going to find the handwritten spectrographic evidence and report about Kennedy's front collar and his necktie. Very revealing, okay? And it was really sidestepped by the Warren Commission. But then we asked, you know, Brian Edwards, who's someone who, who's really respected, who, who gives courses on, you know, criminal, I, I think the word is, he's a criminalist, or, but he's, he's an expert in that area. He was in the JFK Revisited, and he commented on that piece of evidence that was sent to us by Jeff Meek, and we put it in our, uh, in our book. And there's no explanation to the fact that there's metallic debris on JFK's, the back of his clothing, and there's some on the back of Paul Connolly's clothing, but there's none on the necktie. And if you look at what Edwards says about that, he says, well, it can't be the same bullet. We found CIA files that indicate that other useful idiots, what Kent called useful idiots when referring to Oswald, not saying that he was one, but or potential patsies were being lined up for a frame up job. It's in the book. You'll see about Spectre's motives behind the single bullet theory. You're going to learn a heck of a lot about the standards of proof. We cover something that comes from some of the releases that is Oswald's target shooting in Russia. Never ever talked about, but the Russians commented on his, not his hunting there because we know they said he was a bad hunter but this is target shooting there are an awful lot you know when we did the prior plots article well that's morphed into a similar case analysis and there are an awful lot more similar cases that are covered than in the articles i had written a while back about that for kennedy's and king 
I think they'll find that really, really interesting. The thing, then the, I think the chapter called 60 Years of Obstruction of Justice. Uh, I was talking with Jim and he, he was saying, you know, I don't think anybody's laid it out how people have withheld information going back to the assassination itself all the way to Trump and Biden and going through the decades. And it's a, I think it's a 70 page chapter. The others are like 20 or 30 or, but that is a long chapter. The final thing is people, you know, if, if ever again, uh, someone is called a quack because he's bringing out, uh, you know, questions around, I don't know, you know, the single bullet. Again, people will ask, well, who are the quacks? Given that a lot of the people like you, Len, myself, uh, Jim and all that, have people like Schweiker, Sprague, Blakey, Hardway, you know, backing up a heck of a lot of what we're saying. And that I always thought was the biggest misconception that the journalists and historians, you know, uh, always thought that the, 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 we were in a minority of, uh, you know, cons- we're in a, you know, we're a bunch of QAnon gang people who, who sees conspiracies everywhere. That, that is going to com- completely be destroyed by uh, chapter one and what's in the book. Paul, if I could just jump in and, and to kind of tie a little bow around the idea of the 60 years of obstruction and the standards of proof. The, what is most confounding for me is that in 2017, when the record should have been released by President Trump in accordance with the, the JFK Records Act, the first thing that was attacked by uh, White House counsel Curtis Gannon that formed the, the rationale behind President Trump's postponement of the release of those records. The first thing that was attacked was Section 6 of the Act. And what Section 6 does is it lays out the five criteria that the government had the burden of, of, of showing that there was a justification, legal justification. They're spelled out in detail in Section 6 of the Act. The other part of Section 6 that was really critical and that was destroyed when they, they claimed that Section 6 was no longer operable, Section 6 contains the standard of proof that the government was required to meet in order to postpone any record. One, the government had the burden of showing that these records met a criteria set out in, in Section 6. But it's that standard of proof, the clear and convincing evidence that a harm would take place to a specific agent or national security issue. Once they attacked Section 6 and and effectively got rid of Section 6, unlawfully, I would say, it made any decision that would be made by the president or the agencies completely arbitrary. There's no more burden to show that a Section 6 criteria for postponement had been met, and they got rid of the standard of proof under the JFK Act. And it's allowed them since 2017 to postpone with virtually no justification whatsoever. So it shows you exactly how important the standard of proof is. 
and getting rid of that Section 6 standard of proof just destroyed the JFK Act. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, anyway, I, I go ahead, Lynn. I, I don't know if you have any questions, maybe. That... Well, I, first of all, just where is it going to be available? <laughs> okay, Andrew, you're going to help me on this. Uh, as of the 14th or since the 14th, I'm th- trying to think in terms of your show. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple Books. I mean, there's a ton of platforms that will be offering it. Uh, I, I, okay, good. Well, it, we'll find the links for it then, right? Good. Yeah, it, you it. And look, we're promoting it. And then we encourage Andrew set up a web page for the book. So maybe we can send it to you so you can put it in the show notes. And yep, I'm working, I have a, a Facebook. Go ahead, Andrew. I, yeah, the, Len, the web page for the book is jfkchokeholds.com. And there you'll find links to any media and uh, and as well to uh, to the major book uh, retailers where where your listeners can can uh, click on the link and uh, and go directly to buy the book. But it'll be available across the United States and uh, and Canada. I believe the launch date for the Canadian books is the 14th as well. But we invite people to go to uh, jfkchokeholds.com. There's also a link to the Facebook page for the book. And we welcome uh, all visitors. It will be available also in Europe and Australia and I think New Zealand and many places there. It's widely available. Len, get this, we're probably going to have a French version. And today, I think I completed, you know, I, I'll talk to you about this, Andrew, but we think we found someone who might be really interested in putting it in Spanish. So it's going to be one of these unique books, I think, that you'll find in many, uh, many languages. I kind of like English. I'll tell you why, because a lot of the quotes, a lot of the, uh, you know, the, you, you know, all the citations and and it's funny, the JFK assassination brought in a jargon of its own, eh? like grassy knoll, I'm a patsy, uh, you know, all this sort of stuff. But the point is single bullet theory. So I think anybody who's conversant in English will like the English version. But we hope to have it in, in at least three languages. Uh, not easy, though. I'll tell you, not easy because y- you have to kind of know the case to be able to translate it, and you have to have a good legal feel. But we found people who fit that and who are so enthused about bringing it to uh, foreign markets. So that's another interesting thing I think that's happening. Well, very good. I know you guys know the case inside out. So between Jim Eugenio, Matt Crumpton, and Mark Adamczyk, you know, it sounds like it's just going to be power packed with stuff. Something that's that's always needed because you you seem to always find another lone nut uh, and a uh, Warren Commission apologist trying to say 50, 60 years later how the Warren Commission had it right after all, you know. And for people to actually go through it point by point, and and you're saying you've taken ten of them, ten big ones, and just really gone in depth into each one of those. But well, you know, Len, Len, can I I throw this in an sure. inspiration? Yeah for this was your 50 reasons for 50 years. I have to say, when I saw that, and I'm saying now we're in the 60th year, and it's it's now, okay, it's 10 chokeholds, right? But the 50 reasons for 50 years, it, 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 
it was an inspiration, I think, for the whole research com uh, community. And this, this, this here. Uh, look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. If you, if I talked to you two years ago, I never thought I'd write a book about proving there was a conspiracy. I'm much more into figuring out what was the conspiracy. But I'm glad this is done because in there you'll see also clues that might lead to the research. You know, when you talk about a similar case analysis, well, if you understand the similar cases and you figure out one of the similar cases, it's probably going to point to the same, you know, the same guiding hand as what, you know, or some of the people who were who involved in Dallas. So anyway, just one example. So uh, yeah, no, we're really excited. Thank you for having us on your show. And uh, thank you also for, I, I don't think I would have written chokeholds if it wasn't for Black Op Radio and Kennedy's and King. I'm saying I, sorry, the team of authors there were five. I should not have said I there, but I, I know I wouldn't have been involved in it uh, if it weren't for, for that. And uh, thank you for giving us a platform to get it in all. Well, very good. I'm only too happy to help promote good research. And also thank you for, for noting uh, 50 Reasons for 50 Years. It was a, a pretty good series. I mean, I, I don't know what's better or what's worse, but I, we, me and Jeff were very happy with it. And, you know, the only thing is that more Americans aren't upset. It's interesting that we're Canadian and we're looking in from outside the fence and going, don't you guys realize what the ramifications are? You, you let the CIA kill your own president, you know, and you let him get away with it. And year after year, nothing seems to happen. And with Biden, it's just uh, the guy's asleep at the wheel. Yeah. Hey, maybe you just end on this too, Alain. Uh, I will be heading down to Dallas to speak at Lancer. Okay. And Andrew, Jim, Jim will be speaking at Sarawak in Pittsburgh. Uh, he'll be joined by Andrew, uh, Matt. I'm not sure if Mark can make it, uh, but but nevertheless, there's an awful lot of networking, and we're up to about 20 or 30, 20 to 30 media we expect that want to interview us around this this too. So. You know, you never know how that can turn out there. How the, the but there's there's a lot of interest there. So we're really and, and you know I had the well we hope so. But the disappointment was that I thought at the fiftieth something big would happen, and then I heard yeah. all about how Gary Mack and the city of Dallas was clamping down, and that's kind of my motivation for doing it. I thought you know try to keep the language clean here, but <laughs> I was uh I was extremely pissed off and. Uh, it taught me a little life lesson, really, you know. It said, uh, you know, Gary Mack made me so mad that he motivated me into action to do something I didn't want to do. I'm already doing 52 shows a year. Now I'm going to have to do another 52 with video, you know, tripling the editing time and clean, you know, just unbelievable. And, um, you know, but they just pissed me off enough that um, I do that. So I try not to, I try not to piss people off. I'm, you know. It just happens from time to time. I go, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. I just smile and let some things go. But, yeah, I, I would say Gary Mack was, was the number one. You know, the fact that they had Robert Groden arrested, I think, maybe 50 times in the plaza there. Yeah. You know, you know oh, that's yeah. just oh, yeah. unforgivable. Oh, and, unforgivable. Um, Such a gentleman. I bought Robert uh, Groden's book directly from him last year. And I have a picture of myself with him, and I'll treasure it. 
and how you could do that to someone like that. I mean, it's, it's, and you know, people can argue about does the Pruder film, I mean, in our 50 reasons, we feature Robert Groden, and he says that, you know, as far as he's concerned, the Pruder films, it can be a friendly debate saying, I think there's something wrong with the frame here. How come them, you know, you know, just that's another discussion. But I like saying, well, here's his work. Here's his work. And maybe he's only 88% correct. You know, and here's the other guy's work. And maybe it's Oswald in the doorway. Maybe it isn't, you know. So we agree. agree to a certain degree, you know. We agree on a certain points. And, I mean, good for, for you guys in this book of yeah. really pointing out 10, 10 really big chokeholds, as you call them, that regardless I, I think, of. Uh, so, sorry, Len. I, I think 2023, 20, it was a turning point for the assassination story. A lot of the mainstream media has started to report differently than it has previously. I think you're seeing fewer and fewer strong voices on the lone nut side. Yes, there are a few outliers now, but a lot of the mainstream media, the New York Times, there was an article last week that, that covered Jefferson Morley's long saga fighting for the records. It was extremely favorable for the amazing work that Jeff Morley has done. I think that was in the intelligencer. I, I think we're seeing more and more mainstream coverage of a lot of the issues that the research community has brought forward over the last, especially 30 years since the review board finished its job releasing those records. I mean, the story is starting to really come out now. And hopefully the so-called book contributes to that. Well, let, let, let me add something, Len, for your audience. On Friday last week, Jim and I were interviewed for over an hour by Peter Hawley. He was a journalist for the Washington Post who gave very a very good review of Lisa Peace's uh, book, uh, you know, on the uh, RFK assassination. I think it's a lie too big to fail or something. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the, the name in my, yeah, in my head right it. now. Yeah, that's it. That's it, yeah. Yeah, and, and he gave it. And I have always corresponded with Peter after that because I I thanked him about way back when he did that. And, and, you know, he'd respond to me. And then every now and then he'd ask me an opinion. He interviewed Jim and I, and he's no longer with the Washington Post. He's with the Texas Monthly. I hope I got that right. And imagine this, that's a big publication, a big magazine in in Texas. I think it has something like 2.7 million readers. And he, he, I think by Tuesday, which means, uh, so by the time your audience hears this there, it'll be interesting to see that article. Imagine that if in the heart of Texas, uh, there's something by Peter Hawley that's as positive towards our point of view that that he did write for the Washington Post for Lisa Peace. So, you know, people should flock to that and see what's happened. I mean, you know, you never know how these interviews, uh, you know, can end up. But, you know, and what we noticed during that interview, Len, was uh, the pride people like Peter have in Texas and Dallas and the hurt they feel that 
Dallas would have been somehow involved in the assassination because one of the questions he brought up was, could this have happened in any city, really? You know, so we brought up the prior plots and everything. And, you know, we were trying to not to be too harsh on Dallas. And, and to be honest, it must have been tough, you know, being in a, you know, like under pressure uh, to go the lone, rut, lone nut route. And, and, and so on and so forth. So it was a really tough navigation in terms of the discussion, but that will be really interesting to see what comes out of that. I agree with Andrew, though. I sensed a completely different attitude this time around when uh, Paul Landis was being interviewed. Uh, they weren't rejecting it outright. They had tough questions for him. I would have tough questions for him. I'm not saying I'm convinced by what he's saying, but... There's an open-mindedness there that I'm sensing, but who knows? We, we've been disappointed before. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. All right. Thank you both for uh, discussing your book, and I hope we encourage people to pick it up and go to the website, and good luck on the, uh, on the campaign trail, as it were, to promote the book. Well, thank you so much, Len, and uh, I'm glad you're first or among the first to, to interview us, sir. So for podcasts. So thank you so much. All right. It's always thank a you pleasure both. speaking with you, Len. Oh, good. Well, it's a pleasure to speak to you guys. I just, like I say, anybody doing good work, I agree or disagree to some, a certain degree, but at least you're doing good work. You're, you know, you're doing honest research. And if somebody ends up being mistaken about something or, you know, was this a Pruder film altered? Is this a, we can have that discussion. But uh, Hey, Len, I have a question for you. Yeah. Have you ever had three Canadians on at the same time? I don't think so. It's a, hey, it's a hat trick. It's a hat trick. Hey, you know, uh, we're. I think we're. You know, this is important for the image of Canada right now. So thank you again. <laughs> okay. Well, on behalf of Canada, thank you for chokeholds. Take care. All right. Excellent. Bye. Good night. You're listening to Black Op Radio. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we are speaking to Mr. John Barber from Las Vegas. Hello, John. Oh, Len, I'm telling you, I am so, so happy to be talking to you for a number of reasons. And one of them uh, is the fact that when I first came out with my first Garrison tapes uh, in 1992, there were only two people in North America who helped save that documentary from oblivion. And the first one was you in Canada, and the second was George Knapp here in the United States. I cannot thank you enough. And as for my second film, which is by far the most definitive film ever made about the murder of John Kennedy, and Jim Garrison's solved and sabotaged investigation, that film, you played a major role in contributing to that. So I am delighted, delighted, and more delighted to be chatting with you today. And thank you so much for having me. Great. Well, the reason for the interview today is we have some news. You are going to be um, premiering something in Los Angeles coming up, I think, in the next week. So I wanted to let everyone know who might be in that area. Tell me all about it. It is called 
I love that title, and it's very, very strange. It's called John Barber's and William Shakespeare's Last Word on the Murder of JFK. The reason for the William Shakespeare in the title is because many times I had private conversations with Mr. Garrison before we put him on camera for three and a half hours on September 5th, 1981. There are a dozen times we talked to one another, like the first time that I tried to book him on the AM show in Los Angeles. And then after I was on The Tonight Show with Frank Sinatra and he called to compliment me, aside from talking about uh, Watergate and the people at Watergate involved with the murder of John Kennedy, we talked a lot about his favorite writer, William Shakespeare. And when I booked him on the AM show in 1970, a lot of the chapter titles were right out of Hamlet. And so in, in tribute to Mr. Garrison, I closed the film talking about Hamlet and the six months that I spent at the Castle Theater in Farnham, Surrey. I spent, it's a, it really is a wonderful, wonderful, compelling third documentary because in the two films, of course, Len, I am letting Jim Garrison tell his own story uninterrupted by the media and uninterrupted by detractors, especially the federal government. But the third documentary, I tell of the 53 years that I spent trying to tell Mr. Garrison's story on television at the same time I was trying to tell or live my life as a, a performer in television, as a new citizen of the United States, as a new father and a new husband. So it's, it's a twofold story, and it is really, really very compelling, very interesting, and indeed very personal. personal. And for anyone who has read my book, uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American Television. This is the absolute perfect companion piece to it. It opens November 22nd. Uh, that's on a Wednesday at the Town Center 5 Theater in Encino. And then on the 25th, Len, I'm going to be flying down there going to the theater, and I will be there for the three screenings that Saturday to meet and greet the attendees, and hopefully, to those who are interested, we will have a Q&A. Very good. Now, I interviewed you years ago, I think 2015, 2016, when I came to Las Vegas, and you said there was some similarities to that, that it shows your early years in radio and then you getting up to meeting Jim Garrison and that. So if anybody has seen that, then they'll have an idea or they can watch that and, and then prepare for this. So Los Angeles, 22nd and 25th. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, the 22nd, it opens the 25th. And for, I remember you came on July 4th, five, five years ago. 
And I have done, I've done a hundred interviews all around the world. And there are three that are absolutely outstanding. And the one that I did with you that day was by far one of the top three. And I happened to rewatch it the other day myself, as did my wife. And I'm telling you, it is so absolutely wonderful. I mean, it is thrilling television, not only thrilling television, it is thrilling theater and it is thrilling history. You did, uh, as you always do. There is nobody who edits like you. It is just fabulous. Okay, well, let me ask you a couple things about the film and also your interest with Jim Garrison. When you mentioned that you met with him and you would prep, you would talk with him before the cameras are rolling. I mean, he made a real impression on you. So what was it about Jim Garrison that was a catalyst to, to make you follow the um, his journey and, and also the John F. Kennedy assassination? What a great question. First of all, it was my very first phone call to him when I tried to book him on the AM show. And that was in 1970 when the entire country and the government and the media were saying he was such a kook. And of course, I believe that. I believe the government, you know. And uh, I was in a bookstore, Edmund's Bookstore on Hollywood Boulevard, and I saw this book called Heritage of Stone. And the author was Jim Garrison. I thought, oh, is that the same guy? So I picked it up and I started to read it. And Len, I was so overwhelmed by the information I was getting in the book, I stood there for four hours and read it. The first thing that knocked me out was that he had to sue Time Life to get the Zapruder film to show the jury. Second, there was a forensic pathologist named Fink who was called by the defense lawyer Diamond for the Clay Shaw trial. And in cross-examination, he said there was no autopsy because it was stopped by guys in uniform and he thought the guy was Curtis LeBay. Right. But John, I don't mean the particulars of the case. I meant can you I what well I'm getting to it's okay. the because when I called him, he answered the phone. A, a secretary didn't answer the phone. And I said, Hi, my name is John Barber. Um I, I'd like to speak to Mr. Garrison. He said speaking and I said, oh, my name's John Barber, and I just finished reading Heritage of Stone. And he chuckled, and he said, oh, you must be the other one. I only sold two copies. Well, Len, who wouldn't love a guy with a sense of humor like that? And so we, uh, after we chatted a while, and I booked him. Okay, that was great. Now, uh, 10 years, 11 years later, I create the most successful show on television, in in history and it's called real people the first reality show and then i read on page 13 of the la times that four shots have been fired because they combined a dick to bell now i've talked to mr garrison on the phone two or three times and i love him on the phone so i call him and ask him if he feels vindicated and this is what he says he says john i feel like a blind man who's gotten a small trophy in a very dark room. Only I know I got it. Len, how can you not fall in love 
with a man like that, who under that enormous pressure still has that unbelievable sense of irony and sense of humor. And then when he told me he believed the government until an accidental meeting with Congressman Hale Boggs, just like me. I believed the government until an accidental conversation with Jim Garrison. And then, of course, when I went down on September 5th, 1981, and put him on camera, we talked for eight hours off camera because he said, I never want to speculate, but I'm going to tell you who gave uh, uh, Alan Dulles the order uh, to uh, murder John Kennedy. So he told me that off, off camera. And uh, I'm... And you know what I say in one of, I think I say it in the third film. It's like the Greek god of justice named Thesis. And that's who I was face to face with for eight hours sitting in his office. That man is so compelling. I've only met three geniuses in my life and Jim Garrison is the first. My son is second, and Buckminster Fuller, the scientist, is a, a third. But that's a magnificent question that you asked, because I was enraptured by his intellect and his sense of humor just on the phone. But then when I started to read his books, and then when I, he started to tell me about his case, I mean... There's no one like him. He is by far the greatest hero in American history. And the sad thing that I would like to say right now, it's the 60th anniversary of John Kennedy's death. And there'll be no coverage in the mainstream media about it. And by next year, nobody will give a crap about the death of John Kennedy. He's dead and gone. But the one who is the most important to America is Jim Garrison himself, because he's the only district attorney in the history of this country who stood up constitutionally to prove to America that no one should be above the law. He took on Lyndon Johnson. He took on the government. He took on the media and they destroyed him. They destroyed his case. They destroyed his office. They will never destroy that man, man's memory. He will outlast all of them. And the second movie, the American media and the second assassination of President John F. Kennedy, to which you made major contributions, will outlast every movie ever made and every book ever made. Historians, a hundred years from now, will be sitting down and watching that film, and maybe they'll do the same with the third film, which is called John Barber's and William Shakespeare's Last Word on the Assassination. Okay, and, go over that again. Do you know the address? Where is it playing? It's playing at the Town Center 5 Theater in Encino. It's around 17,200 uh, Ventura Boulevard. So let me tell. Uh, let me uh, let me uh, say quickly about 
Nobody's asked me this question except you about the business about William Shakespeare. I feel very, very disheartened over the fact that those in the assassination community, and a couple of them are very good friends of yours, whose name I won't mention because they're friends of yours, they know it's a cold case at the Justice Department, and they do not have the balls to assemble their millions of followers to go there November 22nd, 23, and make it America's Bastille Day and open it. Only two people have ever done that, myself and my attorney, who died a year ago, unfortunately, Brian Lloyd. Now, when you get down, when some people get down, they, uh, they look to God, who is Santa Claus for adults. Or they go to the Bible, or they go to the Talmud, or they go to the Koran, all written by Hans Christian Andersen. They're all fairy tales, okay? Now, with me, when I get down, I go to Bill Hicks, I go to George Carlin, I go to uh, Jonathan Winters, I go to Lenny Bruce, with whom I spent the last week of his life. I go to uh, Gore Vidal, the greatest wit in America following uh, Mark Twain. He was in the 1%. He knew how corrupt the system was. And yet I get no more laughs. And so I went deeper back to Jim Garrison's favorite author, William Shakespeare, and reread Hamlet. And that's why the movie closes with a spectacular piece about Hamlet. I, now, I shouldn't be saying that as the maker of this, that I'm telling you it is spe spectacular, but you'll just have the most fun watching the last 10 minutes of that movie. And not only will you have fun watching it, you are going to learn a whole lot more about Hamlet than you ever thought you could know. And also, you will be moved beyond belief by the sincerity and the depth of it. Now, I did have a listener who wrote me a question. I passed it on to you, and, and he said, in your documentaries, you always show excerpts of your interview, but do you have the complete interview still? And maybe in, in time, you'll release the, the whole interview. Is that a possibility? Uh, no, that's impossible. I, I, I have, it's uh, three and a half hours uh, when I still have it. If there's anyone in the world that I would share it with and put it in their hands, it's you. But other than that, no one ever, ever, ever will see it because I don't want his story to be in bits and parts. I want to, you know, I'm a storyteller. And pardon me for this lack of uh, humility, but I proved with real people that I was by far head and shoulders the best storyteller in American television. And and I predicted that I was going to change the face of television with what I call the entertainment of reality. And you can go to my site, 
www.johnbarbersworld.com not only to see the great interview you did with me, but just hundreds and hundreds of stories that I tell in, uh, in, the, in the scores and scores of shows that I did, in spite of the fact that there were scores and scores of people in the industry working with the government that tried to keep me off of television. And one of the things that people do not know is that Bristol Myers, yes, Bristol Myers, no, Procter & Gamble, no, it was Bristol Myers. Jim McGinn was the program director at at Bristol Myers. And in the 80s, uh, he got me two weeks late night on ABC called The Barber Report. And I did so well against David Letterman that he contacted ABC and said, Bristol Myers, now Bristol's Myers is a company did did in search of, they did a lot of uh, uh, soap operas. And they said to ABC, we want to expand John Barber to one hour live and it won't cost ABC a nickel. Brist- uh, we are going to pay for it. And they said, no, John Barber is just too damn controversial. And the same thing happened when I did one of the greatest jokes ever about uh, the, the Warren Commission uh, off camera while I was doing one of the Dean Martin shows. And that story is around somewhere, and I would love to tell it to you at some time. I don't know that I have to time to tell it to you right now do we have time to tell that story quickly well no well i should have you on for a full show i just wanted to make sure that i could help promote your new film coming out and for anybody in los angeles that that they would be able to go see it because it's a limited a run right Uh, is it only going to be there like for a week or a couple of days or it is just going to be there for a week and i'll be there on the 25th which is a saturday for a meet and greet And I'm really, really anxious to do that because it'll be interesting to see reaction to what is. um, Do you ever remember something? Spalding Gray did something called uh, Swimming to Cambodia. No, I've heard of that, but no, I I haven't seen it. Well, it was sort of like a one man show that was up for an Oscar. And then, of course, my favorite uh, evening in, in a theater ever was Hal Holbrook's Mark Twain Tonight. It is a lot like that, only it's a two-dimensional story. While Hal Holbrook had the greatest writer in American history, Mark Twain, uh, and Spalding Gray was a great storyteller, uh, this is two stories. It's my 53 years of spending 53 years and over a half a million dollars in trying to tell Jim Garrison's story in the hopes that I could raise one million dollars so that I could get a scholarship for him at Tulane University because he's worth remembering a lot more than is John Kennedy. And every time I got to get close to raising that much money, it was stolen from me. And once by my closest partner, Freddie Weintraub, who is sadly dead now and lying somewhere. In a, okay. under a, well, that's for another show. 
Okay. Give us the title again, John. It is called John Barber's and William Shakespeare's Last Word on the Murder of JFK. It's at the Town Center 5 Theater in Encino. Opens November 22nd and runs for a whole week. And the screening is 1 o'clock, 3.30, and 7.30. And I will be there on the 25th for all three screenings. Okay, very good, John. Thanks so much. I know you're very busy today and this week, so thanks for taking time to talk to listeners here at Black Op Radio. Good luck, and uh, you're the one... Man, I know that does put his money where his mouth is. I mean, if you say you're going to make something, you follow through. You make it. You've you've done nothing but good work for for um, Jim Garrison, like no one else, like no one else. You. Well, can I tell you something really cute? My I, I, my mentor in this business was Red Fox. Red Fox, I was the first one to put on entertainment television, which led to Sanford and Son, which is his real name. And when I was uh, describing Jim Garrison to him, Red Fox said, heroes ain't born, they're cornered. Well, I mentioned that to Jim, and he started to howl. And he said, John, that is so funny and so true, because I believed my government until I was cornered by the truth by meeting the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission, who was Hale Boggs. And in my case, Len, I was cornered by learning the truth from Jim Garrison. And I am a storyteller. Telling stories is, listen, when I was six and living on the streets and going to movie theaters and listening to the radios, it was stories that kept me alive. Now that I'm older, it's telling stories that keep me alive. And there is nothing more important than the story of Jim Garrison. And if I, even if it cost me the two greatest shows in television, I could not live with myself if I did not tell that very American story. And okay, you're a great storyteller, and thank thank the gods of broadcasting for you. Okay, so there you go. All right. Okay, John, I'll speak to you later on, maybe in a month or so. Uh, you can give us a report how this went, and then. Um, and then we can uh, reflect back on the um, on the 60th anniversary. And like you say, with Joe Biden, uh, I mean, it's a very sad state of affairs where the American public doesn't really care what happened to a really good president. You know. Hey, you want to know something? It's kind of interesting that we're chatting right now because you probably heard about it. You know, uh, thanks to Oliver's great film, they passed the Records Assassination Act. Okay. Three years ago, uh, Congress is supposed to release all the files. Not even Trump did it. Not even Biden did it. They all caved into the CIA. This past week, Joe Biden said, I am giving up on the business about releasing the files. I'll turn it over to the CIA. And guess what? The CIA announced to the world and to Jefferson Morley, the guy that's been trying to get them for 15 years, especially the garrison files, the CIA says, we are never releasing the CIA files. So George Knapp, my second best friend in Vegas, says, John, it looks like we'll never know the truth. And I said to George, I said, George, We already know the truth. It's a cold case in the Justice Department. 
signed, proven by Jim Garrison. We don't need the files. We don't need Biden. We just need people with the balls to be able to gather 20,000 people to storm the bar barricades of bullshit at the Justice Department and get this cold case open. We know the truth. America collapsed. Everything that went wrong with this country happened on November 22nd, 1963. And if you want to repair it, you open that Pandora's box and you will repair everything. And in the film that I'm doing, uh, John Barber and William Shakespeare's last word on the murder of JFK, I have the greatest jokes about Biden and Trump. Okay, good. I'm looking forward to uh, viewing it and uh, and and having you back on. So, thanks, thanks for just this today, and I hope we uh, inspire people to go watch it. Well, I'm going to send you. I think I sent you your own private copy. So I hope you and Susan uh, sit down and take a look at it. Okay. You're going to done yeah. by. Well, I will call you a couple of days after I get home from Los Angeles. Okay, good. Looking forward to that. Thank oh, you very much, John. Thank you, Len, and you have a wonderful day, and my love to Susan. Okay, thank you so much, and for your family, too. Best wishes. Okay, good night. Good night.